Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When I look through and I read about some of the things, that, the accusations, it really kind of floors me and but it goes back to what we were talking about before that, you know, about the corruption and the way law enforcement was a different world then. We're held to a completely different standard these days. That was Rockledge Police Corporal Jeff White talking about how one ex-cop, who also happens to be a suspect in a cold case he's investigating, got fired or was forced to resign from seven police agencies during his 16-year career. That story is coming up on Sun Crime State. I'm Tony Holt, crime reporter for the Daytona Beach News Journal. Welcome to Sun Crime State, a weekly podcast that takes an in-depth look at Florida's biggest crime stories of the past and present. In this episode, I'll discuss the March 22nd, 1988 slang of Kim Cherie Howe, who was bludgeoned near a dirt road in Brevard County. She was a prostitute and a mother of three. One of the leading suspects in the case was a police officer with a less than impeccable record of service. My special guest for that segment will be the man investigating the 30-year-old unsolved case for the Rockledge Police Department. But first, I'll discuss the recent arrest of a white nationalist in Tallahassee who is accused of providing false information to authorities about the man charged in the Parkland school shooting. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. I do think the Civil War is a very real possibility in the next two years. An open, violent clash involving guns and people stabbing and killing each other. I think that, that if that were happening in the next five months, I wouldn't flinch. I, I, would, I would just suspect it. That was the voice of Jordan Jarib, who heads the Republic of Florida, a so-called white civil rights organization that seeks to secede and establish its own ethno-state consisting exclusively of white Westerners. Jordan Jarib was led away in handcuffs Wednesday from his mother's Tallahassee home after federal authorities searched the property for evidence, according to the Tallahassee Democrat. The FBI was looking for evidence linked to the alleged misinformation he provided law enforcement about the shooter in last month's Parkland High School mass shooting. Jarib was arrested on charges of violation of probation. 
His probation stems from a 2016 charge of extortion by threats. He pleaded no contest to that charge 15 months ago. In a video posted by the Tallahassee Democrat, Jareb described in more detail what the Republic of Florida is about. The Republic of Florida is a coalition of Floridian secessionists that wants uh, not only a white ethno state, but an ethno state for all peoples that that have uh, laid claim to Floridian soil. During the afternoon of February 14th, 19-year-old Nicholas Cruz opened fire inside Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, a small city in Broward County. In all, 17 people were killed and another 15 were injured. Jareb claimed that Cruz had done paramilitary training with ROF. Authorities said those claims were false. According to the Tallahassee Democrat, Jareb's false statements set off a media firestorm. The paper also said Jareb eventually walked back those statements, saying he was suffering from a lack of sleep and got some names mixed up. But the Associated Press picked up the story, which was published in news publications all around the world. On Wednesday, dozens of law enforcement vehicles, local, state, and federal, were parked outside Jareb's mother's home in the Piney Z Plantation neighborhood on the east side of town. The Tallahassee Democrat reported that several items were removed from the home, including what looked to be a computer tower wrapped in plastic. A subsequent story by the newspaper stated that tactical knives also were uncovered during the search of the premises. Jareb, who was 22 years old, was subsequently taken away in handcuffs. While being led away, he yelled to a television station, quote, I didn't do anything wrong. I'm a good person. Here is more from Jareb's video posted on the Tallahassee Democrats website. We're not a hate group. We're not neo-Nazis. We do believe the right, the white race has the right to exist. He insists he's not looking for war. He believes every race has its own unique traits, but suggested it is wrong to force them all to mix together. Bottom line is, it's not cool to be a leftist anymore. We are the new counterculture. We're taking over. Survival calls for vigilance. Survival calls for a never-ending battle. A battle I hand to my children. A battle my children hand to their children, uh, a battle that could literally leave the planet Earth. We're going to have colonization someday. Someday we, we're going to look beyond this planet. The Earth is a beautiful place with many different races, with many different colors and creeds, with many different religions. We can all coexist independently and preserve our unique features and not destroy our unique features by forcing each other all over one into one area. We have different ideas, we have different races, we have different religions. We're different, and, and instead of killing each other over these differences, I'm not bringing a message of war. I'm bringing a message of, of what will be better for all of humanity. In other news related to the Parkland shooting, Cruz's younger brother, Zachary, is accused of ignoring orders to stay away from the school's campus. On Monday, he was charged with trespassing. 
bail for such a charge is usually $25. But the judge in the case set a whopping $500,000 bail amount for Zachary Cruz, one that his attorney swore would not stand. The president of the Broward Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers told the South Florida Sun Sentinel, quote, It's clearly a reaction the court feels the community wants to see, but it is excessive. It is unlawful. It's guilt by association. Our due process rights begin to erode once we start traveling down this path. The 18-year-old Zachary Cruz was committed for mental health observation under Florida's Baker Act last Monday. An arrest report stated that the younger Cruz admitted to visiting the campus a total of three times to reflect on the rampage his brother is accused of committing. He has an arrest history, which includes a charge of criminal mischief. Authorities said he had skateboarded on a police car. Meanwhile, Nicholas Cruz is facing the death penalty for his first-degree murder charges. Coming up, the story of the slaying of Kim Sheree Howe, whose body was found 30 years ago last Thursday in Rockledge. My special guest for that segment will be Rockledge Police Corporal Jeff White. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of... uh human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. During the early morning hours of March 22, 1988, Kim Howe was beaten to death with a heavy rock. Her body lay on a dirt road that ran east and west and connected Howard Street and Santa Rosa Drive in Rockledge. Howe was killed less than two football fields from the border of Coco. In the late 1980s, the area was rife with prostitution-related activities. Prostitution didn't stand on any street corners in that neighborhood, but Johns often drove them to that spot, which at the time was still an out-of-the-way place absent of any street lights. But the area was in proximity to a neighborhood and a school. Howe's body would be discovered later that morning by a pair of school children. Here is Corporal Jeff White, a supervisor of the Criminal Investigations Division for the Rockledge Police Department. Basically, it was you know two kids that were that left the, the left the house to go to school that morning, and they uh, walked down the the dirt path that you could kind of drive. You basically could drive through it. It was like a of a dirt road area. They were cutting down the, the dirt road and come upon Miss Howe and the essentially what was a crime scene at the time and. They stopped and panicked, and then they ran back home and told their mom, and then their uh, parents got involved and, of course, questioned the boys and said, well, you know, what did you really see? And then they called the police, and they ended up finding this Howe, you know, deceased on this dirt road. Kim Howe was 31 years old. She had moved to Coco about 18 months earlier after divorcing her husband and leaving her family behind in Fort Pierce. She was a mother of three children. 
her oldest child was about nine years old. Her other two were so young by the time their mother was killed, they have no memory of her. She was a petite woman with dirty blonde hair and an average build. She turned to prostitution to support her drug habit. After police arrived, they were able to identify her quickly because at least one of the officers on the scene knew her to be a local prostitute. They also found the murder weapon lying in proximity to her body. They found her, you know, she was partially clothed. They kind of hard to recognize her at the time, and they were able to identify her as somebody that one of the officers knew her from the area, one of the cocoa officers at the time, and uh, he made an identification of Miss Howe, and from there they conducted, uh, you know, or started to conduct their interviews and canvassing the area and that type of thing, collecting what they did at the time for evidence, which was this rock. (laughs) It didn't take long for investigators at the time to come up with two suspects. The first was a man who had been known to abuse drugs and pick up prostitutes. The night before Kim was killed, she had filed a police report against a man who had been harassing her. He was suspected to have harassed her throughout the night before she was killed. His name was Charles Christmas. Upon interviewing him and the officers that, or the investigators that interviewed him actually went to New York and tracked him down and, and interviewed him and conducted lengthy interviews and he took a polygraph at the time and, you know, various things and they were looking at him because they had determined that he was the last person to actually see her alive because he was trying to pick her up. Um, this individual, you know, he went around and He admitted during the interviews and stuff that he was going around that night. He had tried to pick her up multiple times. She refused to, you know, go with him. He was smoking crack. He was partying through the night, etc. And there's the theory that he may have done it. Christmas died a few years ago, but White is still investigating whether he may have been involved in Kim's murder. The second suspect seems to be the most intriguing. The media in the late 80s did a lot of stories about this man. He was a cop, one who had a history of involvement with prostitutes. His name was Clifford Johns. And I can say he was our main suspect, or he was law enforcement's main suspect, way back in the day. However, I just learned through all of this... um, last year when I was when I reopened this case when I tried to track him down I learned that he had passed away back in 2014 state law enforcement records and archived stories in the Orlando Sentinel show that Johns was employed at seven different police agencies across 16 years and two of those agencies rehired him after firing him his first police job in June 1973, was at the Stewart Police Department. He was fired in May 1974, at which time he enlisted in the U.S. Marine Corps and served two years. He was hired by the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office in August 1976, but resigned two months later after a series of run-ins with his superiors and with police officers at other police agencies. 
In November of that year, he was rehired by Stewart Police, but was forced to resign in July 1978 after being disciplined following peeping Tom allegations. He was reinstated a couple months later, but resigned under pressure in 1980 after being cited with contempt of court. He allegedly failed to show up to testify in cases on which he worked. He was hired in October 1980 by the Mangonia Park Police Department, but was forced to resign after only three days on the job once his track record at Stewart came to light. In December of that year, he was hired by the Lake Park Police Department, but he was fired from that job in February 1981 after his supervisors learned he had neglected to include in his application the jobs he had previously been terminated from. He also noted on the same application that he was a juvenile when he was arrested on a shoplifting charge. In reality, he was 19 years old. Johns tried his luck in another county. In March 1981, he was hired by the new Smyrna Beach Police Department in Volusia. His employment there ended after six months. An agency spokesman told me that employment records dating that far back are no longer available. So the circumstances behind his exit at New Smyrna are not known. Two days after his resignation from New Smyrna, Johns was hired by the Brevard County Sheriff's Office. That was in September of 1981. In August 1985, he was forced to resign after he was charged in Orange County with soliciting sex from an undercover Orlando police officer. The charge wound up getting dropped based on a scheduling mix-up. The officer who made the arrest was on vacation when the case went to trial. It took only four months before Johns landed his eighth law enforcement job. The Cocoa Police Department hired him in January 1986. The chief who hired him wound up firing him four and a half months later on allegations that he had stolen $1,200 from a suspected drug dealer. Johns failed a polygraph test but was never prosecuted. A new chief came aboard afterward and hired Johns in November 1986. The Orlando Sentinel reported that Johns passed two polygraph tests before the new chief agreed to hire him. He was suspended in May 1988 on several allegations, including a few he had been familiar with earlier in his career. Police said Johns had forced prostitutes to have sex with him, stole money from drug dealers, falsified reports, and battered suspects. Johns was charged that month with battery on allegations he had hogtied and kicked a handcuffed suspect. The suspect was charged with possession of cocaine and resisting arrest with violence. Originally, the state attorney's office closed the case without charging Johns, but it was reopened after the Kim House slang in Rockledge. Once it was known that Johns was a person of interest in that case, prosecutors took a closer look at the battery case. His legal troubles got worse in June of that year when he was charged with lewd and lascivious assault on a child. He was accused of having sex with a 14-year-old prostitute during the summer of 1985. Johns was accused of picking up the girl at a grandmother's house, driving her to a motel, and paying her $40 to have sex with him. 
In July, he was found not guilty of battery, even though two agency employees testified they had witnessed Johns kicking the suspect. In November 1988, Johns was found guilty of sexually attacking the girl. However, one of the jurors told the Orlando Sentinel that he had doubts about his guilty vote. Johns also had to be moved to the Seminole County Jail because he was being threatened by fellow inmates at the Brevard County Jail. He wound up getting released on $10,000 bail during his appeal of the conviction. Johns was officially fired from his last law enforcement job on July 1, 1989. He lost his law enforcement certification a day earlier. He was 34 years old. In December 1989, the judge who presided over his trial reduced his sentence to house arrest. While he didn't deny that Johns was probably guilty, he was more incensed at prosecutors and accused them of going on a witch hunt. Circuit Judge Clarence Johnson said he was bothered because Johns was prosecuted not so much for the crime he was tried for, but for other things he may have done. He added that he thought the trial was used as a guise to get his badge taken away. The same judge also referred to the girl as a so-called victim. However, the 5th District Court of Appeal ordered a new sentence for Johns in July 1991. Afterward, he was sentenced to two and a half years in prison. In spite of all of John's legal issues before and after Kim Howe's slaying, he was never charged in her murder. Many of the people associated with the case are no longer around. They're either dead or they have moved away and haven't looked back. A few have agreed to speak to White, who is still in the process of reviewing every piece of paper that is stuffed inside the three four-inch binders related to the case. The few witnesses that we do have, a lot of them point towards the former officer, and because of the violent tendency and the relationship that Ms. Howe had with this particular officer at the time, evidently there was a sexual component to that relationship and it was well known that he uh, according to one of the witnesses who was another prostitute at the time she has expressed or explained to us that he was very violent when things would happen or girls wouldn't do what he wanted them to do and he was not afraid to beat them or anything of that nature. White is not completely convinced that Johns is the culprit, or even that the culprit is either Johns or Christmas. He wants to make sure not to have tunnel vision while he still reviews the case. Do you think it's possible that her killer was someone else and still alive? Well, it's absolutely possible. Yeah, there's there's absolutely nothing to say that it couldn't have been a, a third party that we don't know about. There was one other fact that White uncovered with regards to John's relationship with Kim Howe. I know through interviews that have been conducted over the years is that Kim and this Clifford Johns were having or lived together and had a relationship that went beyond just her being a prostitute in the streets. When White started looking at the Kim Howe murder case in late 2015, 
it had gone cold, virtually untouched, for close to a decade. It remains Rockledge Police's oldest cold case, and possibly one that's generated the most notoriety. Strangely, there are very few people close to Kim Howe who have shown any desire to see the case closed. The only person White has communicated with is Kim Howe's youngest daughter, who has no memories of her mother. Is she the only one among the three who, who has a vested interest in this case being solved? Or, or yes. Really? Okay. Yeah, she's the only one that has reached out and actually um, continued communication with me. White was encouraged by Kim Howe's daughter's reaction to the news that his agency had reopened the case and that he was leading the investigation. You know, she was very um, happy that, that our agency was looking at her, you know, her mother's death again or trying to look into it further because it had been several years, probably been about eight or, eight or ten years since anybody had really looked at the case. Efforts to reach Kim Howe's youngest daughter were not successful. People don't like no, not knowing what happened. And, and we're a society of, especially with social media and the digital age that we live in, is that we, we have to have knowledge about all these different things. And, you know, you grow up and not really know what happened to your mom. I, I can't imagine what that was like for this young lady. And she's dealt with that her entire life. In spite of everything known about John's law enforcement career, in spite of his allegations of violence and sexual misdeeds, no evidence has been uncovered to link him to Kim Howe's murder. The large rock found near the victim's body was retested for DNA. White had hoped that traces of the killer's DNA could be recovered, but it wasn't. All of it means that John's and Christmas remain suspects, but police are no closer to solving the case now than they were 30 years ago. It's hard for me to, to say that I, that I list one above the other. I know that there are certain people, and, and including you know, some retired officers that, that work next to Clifford Jones, they are adamant that he did it. You know, there's no proof of that. There's no, there's no smoking gun. And then there's others that are convinced or they have strong feelings that, that Christmas is the, is the responsible party. Anyone with information about the murder of Kim Cherie Howe is urged to call the Rockledge Police Department at 321-690-3988 or call Crime Stoppers at 1-800-423-8477. Thank you for listening. Tune in next week when I'll discuss the one-year anniversary of the killing of Christopher Keating, a member of the Outlaws Motorcycle Club. He was known by his friends as Louis de Lip. He was stabbed to death in the back of Crook's Den, a biker bar in Daytona Beach. That case has remained unsolved. In two weeks, I'll discuss a murder case from 1986 here in Volusia County. For that episode, you'll hear directly from Russ Davies, the man convicted and sentenced to life in prison for that slaying. Davies feels he was wronged by the system, his attorney, and his co-defendants. But above all, 
He's trying every legal course of action available so that he may be transferred to a Canadian prison and be closer to his ailing parents. You don't want to miss these next two episodes. Join us then. You can find Tony on Twitter at Tony Crime Writer or email him at tony.holt at news-jrnl.com. Be sure to rate us on iTunes. Sun Crime State is recorded by Tony Holt and produced by Chris Bridges for the Daytona Beach News Journal. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.